Hello. Hey, Kai. Hey, Michael. How's it going? All right. So we're about to release the episode uh, that we did with uh, Susan Kismarek, and that was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Uh, I'm I'm uh, very excited to hear this one myself, actually. Yeah, it's just it was just so interesting to speak to someone who has been so involved and so important in the history of photography and, you know, still doing it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the things that distinguishes Susan from from maybe other people that you, you run into in her position is that she started off by looking at photographs, you know, and uh, that continued on. It's like her delight at looking at photographs is what... Uh, has carried her through to this day. I mean, uh, yeah, I'm actually not... you, it's funny you mentioned that, you know, I, having just finished editing, uh, part one and it will be mm. a two parter, mm. you know, one of the things she says is I'm not cynical. I still get excited. I still, you know, can see the magic. Yeah. I mean, how many photo curators are going to tell you that they just saw a photo in the newspaper this morning that they thought was great, you know? Right. <laughs> and it's not, it's not uh, artistic enough. It's not smart enough. It doesn't reference uh, Walter Benjamin or anything like that. It's just she, you know, genuinely loves looking at the photos. So, and it comes across. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're actually on. You said you just told me you're on your way to Photocare tonight. What's going on at Photocare? Uh, it's actually not at Photocare, but Photocare is one of the sponsors. That there's a some sort of Leica event there, uh, showing off you know one of the digital uh, medium format digital Leicas with some, maybe some other back or something else. But I never go to those sort of things. And then maybe because I'm on spring break this week, and Woo-hoo! because they mentioned yes, exactly, <laughs> and they mentioned something about a gift bag for everyone who showed up. So I was like, all right, all right, <laughs> I'm in. I'm going. Oh, it'll probably have a nice Leica logo on it. I love those things. Yeah, you know the the spare keys we have for the graduate dark rooms I used to have on one of those keychains that looks like a fake SLR camera and you push the button and it makes a noise. <laughs> but uh, at the photographic uh, expo at the Javits Center uh, this just this last year, they were giving out those Leica like keychain fobs and now the key's on that. So I figured, you know, I could get some more swag for maybe for the office or something. Right. Well, we've been to quite a few good shows recently. Uh, you know, at the Stephen Kasher Gallery, um, there were the there were the two shows. I think, believe they're still up. Uh, probably coming down pretty soon. Merrill Meiser, Meisler, sorry, Merrill Meisler, and <laughs> edit, edit, edit. Yeah. <laughs> well, it does, I can't edit if you laugh and say edit, edit, edit. <laughs> so, the Merrill Meisler show. And the Brian Griffin show. And you know what I, I loved about those shows? Not only the photographs, but I, di- I really didn't know much about either of them. I had no idea about Merrill Meisler. Um, and Brian Griffin, you know, a British photographer. I, I think I remember hearing about him a bit during the Thatcher years, but I, I really didn't know the work until I saw it at the Casher Gallery. Yeah. No, no, I hadn't seen any of that before. And um, comes to another point. I can't remember if I said this while we were recording or not, but when we were with Susan, I was just saying how how fortunate we are to be in New York City and have access to these sorts of things and people like her. her and um, And you don't often take advantage of them you know so no that's right that's right and that's that's the beauty of doing this show is is you know getting back in there and seeing all the stuff and we also had two former guests with shows yeah that's right Imbal Abergil has a show up uh still I think it's yeah it's still up at um Baxter uh, yeah 
the Baxter Street Gallery for the Camera Club of New York. And Eileen Quinlan uh, also has an exhibit up at both locations at Miguel Abreu Gallery on the Lower East Side, uh, 88 Eldridge, and the other location is on Orchard. I forget exactly where. But her show just opened, so it's going to be up for a little while. And that, so. was, that was the show she was working on when we spoke to her. Exactly. And I think even, well, nothing that we saw in her studio that day that I recall, but some stuff that looked a little like it uh, is definitely in the show. The stuff with the scanner, you know, it's kind of like digital interference um, lines and everything. That's definitely in there. Yeah. So maybe down the road, uh, we'll have to get together and talk about some things that are that are coming up for you. Just a little teaser to put out there. Yeah, well, uh, I am. Uh, I've been tr- uh, going across the Internet trying to find uh, appropriate two line quote to be the introduction to my book uh, about face picturing Tampa, hopefully coming out later this year. So uh, yeah. I've been reading and researching and trying to find something that sets the appropriate tone for the beginning of the book but mm. i haven't found anything just yet i got lost in reading uh uh quotes from the person who was the mayor of tampa at the time and, right. <laughs> and didn't, didn't find anything i wanted to use but just got sucked into like local debates about uh greenways and stuff like that oh right well, and there's also that um a uh, very well-known comedic author who writes about florida all the time dave barry i think have yeah. you ever looked into any of that work no i i don't know that work um, I did find out about more stuff about the bus stop benches and how who the companies that are involved in put, putting them up and how they got really in trouble in the 90s for just like dropping them all along the highways, even if there was a bus stop there or not, <laughs> just to put up ads. And that was kind of interesting. But again, not exactly what I was looking for. So. Right. All right. Well, I'm... Uh, if anyone wants a Konica Hexar rangefinder body in perfect condition, I just finished putting the uh, listing up on eBay. FYI. Oh. Well, just email the show if you're interested in that in that body. <laughs> we'll start our own uh, Craigslist on the show or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Do you want me to turn a light on? I'm okay. Uh, See how you feel. Does that feel cozier? (laughs) So uh, we're here with Susan Kismarek uh, at your home in New York City. Yes. And I'm here with my co-host, Kai McBride. Hi, Kai. Hello. And um, I thought if it isn't too uh, untoward, I would actually read a short bio just to have us get an introduction. I think that's a good idea because it's it's quite extensive. Yeah. Do you have a staff like car talk? No, we don't. We We should make up all the fake positions. Our Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe legal team. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, sorry for interrupting. No, go ahead. Uh, So Susan Kaczmarek was a curator in the Department of Photography at the Museum of Modern Art in New York until March of 2011. She first joined the museum in 1976 as study center supervisor and subsequently worked as assistant curator and associate curator. She served as acting director of the department from 1980 to 1981, while its former director, John Tchaikovsky, was on a sabbatical leave. Ms. Kaczmarek organized over 30 exhibitions during her 35-year tenure at MoMA. Notable exhibitions include Jan Groover in 1987, Self-Portrait, The Photographer's Persona, 1840 to 1985. 
which was in 1985. Larry Fink, 1979. William Klein, 1981. American Children, 81. Mount St. Helens, Work in Progress, photographs by Frank Golke, 1983. Present Tense, photographs by Joanne Verberg in 2007. And Shimmer of Possibility, photographs by Paul Graham, and many more. But those are some of the notable ones. Uh, and maybe we'll hear about this today, but before MoMA, uh, Susan worked for five years in the picture collection at the Time and Life Corporation. She's currently working as an independent curator and scholar and teaching history of post-World War II photography at uh, Fordham University. And also has done other teaching, such as being a visiting senior critic at Yale School of Art and coming to Columbia University as a visitor to Tom Roma's classes and to our uh, summer intensive program. So we're delighted to have somebody of uh, such tenure here on the photo show. Age? Do you mean age? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> experience. Let's yes, think of it as experience. experience. And yes. knowledge. Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so welcome. Thanks. Yeah. Glad to be here. Or I'm home, so. Yeah, yes, yeah. right. Hey, <laughs> where are okay. you going to be? Glad you're here. <laughs> Thanks. Um, did, you, did you always know that you were going to end up in New York or come to New York? Did you... Um, I'm sure Kai has heard some version of this story. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to hear um, it again. I, I was actually born in New Jersey and lived there until I was about 10 or 11, I guess. And my dad worked for DuPont Chemical, and the plant in Jersey closed down. And while we lived in Jersey, we used to come into the city often. N not, no, I shouldn't say often. We would come in maybe three times a year. That but it was felt, so special yeah. right. that it felt, and those were the days when you would go to Radio City and see a film and the mm. stage show, or you'd go to the Roxy Theater, which was a great movie theater, and go to the Empire State Building and walk around the city, you know, sort of, this this is the 1950s, sort of the Gary Winogrand mm. era, the, you know, great moment of street photography in the 50s. In any case, uh, my dad was transferred to West Virginia, yeah. uh, to the Ohio Valley with DuPont. Mm. And so, of course, we went with him. <laughs> and uh, I spent, I guess, middle school and high school in West Virginia. And I can say that, yes, indeed, my sister and I always wanted to come back to New York City. And mm. we were Catholic, and my parents demanded that we go to church. And we used, to, so my dad would let my sister drive the car to church, just she and I, they didn't go to church. And oh, wow. my sister and I would take the money for the collection box and drive <laughs> downtown in Parkersburg, West Virginia, this is, and buy the New Yorker for oh, that week and two wow. candy bars. And then we would drive the car to the city park and sit and read the New Yorker or at least look at the cartoons <laughs> and eat our candy bars and then go home and pretend we'd gone to Mass. But the whole wow. idea was, you know, I mean, there we are reading the New Yorker in West Virginia. I'm in middle school. She's in high school. Yes, I always wanted to come back to the mm. city and sort of the minute I could, I did. Wow. So you were corrupted by the city from afar in a way. like I guess, yeah. I guess, yeah. But no, there was something about, you know, the energy that I understood when I was a very young kid, mm. and then to go to someplace like West Virginia, which was, you know, sort of culturally deprived and otherwise, I'm not a nature person. <laughs> so you know, yeah. the idea of being someplace where there was such so much energy and stuff mm. was important. Yeah. You, you ended up going to UPenn. Not UPenn. Your... No, oh no, I'm not sorry. Not the good school. Oh no, 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 the bad school, Pennsylvania State University. Oh, okay. Where I only went, and I only went there. I mean, this starts being, you know, 
what what are the words, um, something perhaps more personal. My sister went to Pennsylvania State University. No one in West Virginia helped us decide where to go. There were no school counselors. Uh-huh. My parents, neither, my father had basically gone, I had no guidance, let's just say that. So I basically followed him. I, I remember I wanted to get the application for Antioch College in Ohio, and my father wouldn't give me the money because uh, it was like a $15, $10 application yeah. fee. So, okay, I'll apply to Penn State, and I got into Penn State, which of course was a terrible mistake mm-hmm. because. Even at that time, I think there were 25,000 students on the campus at University Park, which is dead center of Pennsylvania. Mm. Um, and I needed to go to someplace like Antioch, you know, a school where there were like 300 students. Right. And mm. I could have a lot of attention because I, once I got to Penn State, I had no idea why I was, why I was there. That's where I went. Henry Wessel. Oh. Great photographer. Oh, I had no idea. That's amazing. He was my there. first boyfriend in my whole life. Oh. oh, wow. You didn't know this? No. Oh, wow. I'm talking to the. <laughs> yes, amazing. Yes. Oh. Great photographer. He yes. was not interested in photography when I knew him. He was hmm. basically interested in motorcycles. Yeah. Um, and other things. <laughs> um, in any case, my sister was a senior when I was there. I was a freshman. Hmm. I was an English major. And I, as I said, I had no idea I was there. I happened in my second year, the middle of my second year, to have a terrible car accident, which hospitalized me. Oh, man. But it was just kind of a way to get out of being in school. So I left school and was supposed to take correspondence classes to get back into Penn State. Mm. I don't think I filled out one lesson. (laughs) I moved to New York. My sister was living here, and she was working. She may have been working at Time Life at that point, mm-hmm. and I came to the city and lived with her. And of course, it was those days. It was the '60s, and, and 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 at that point in time, there would be like three, four women living together in a you know four bedroom apartment on the Upper East Side. One would be an airline stewardess. One would be an editor at a fashion <laughs> magazine. It was like a sitcom, right. you know. And another one would be an actress or something, you know. And and that's what it was like, and it was fun, and it was you know whatever. And so we, yeah. we mentioned her a couple of times, so we should also speak about um, Carol a little Kismeric. about Carol Kismeric, your sister, who uh, was she helped found the, the Time Life start that Time Life series about photography. Well, I think she was. I think she. I know she was definitely involved in the formation of the series, and then she was the editor. Of course, the editor at Aperture the, too. Yes, and she was the editor of the documentary uh, book within the photography one. series, and I think another one, and in fact. That documentary book, if you look at it, it's got Lee Friedlander and Gary Winogrand and Diane Arbus. Mm. And this is, I don't remember what year it is, actually. It'll be good to know because to know whether it predates, for example, new documents in 67. It's possible. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. But it's through her that I became acquainted with that work and those photographers. Um, Because I would go to her, I got a, I had to I I had to start working because I wasn't contributing any money. Right. To these. So I went to the telephone book and I uh, looked up the fir- the yellow pages of the first employment agency in the phone book, which was called Accurate Personnel. <laughs> I went there and I got a job taking orders for radios and televisions at Matsushita Electric Company on Twelfth Avenue and Forty Sixth Street. And I did the. It was actually interesting because the office was in a building with um, where the where the where the um, where the stuff was delivered. 
so there were all these truck drivers there who had these great lives. And we would eat lunch together in a oh, lunchroom. Wow. And they had great lives. They had very interesting lives. Mm. Anyway, They were out I got installing bored. and doing things. <laughs> they, yeah, well, no, they were, they were delivering, delivering. tractor-trailer trucks okay. of radios and TVs. But um, my sister worked at Time Life. And when I left, I would often walk over to her office. And she would have these portfolios. I remember mm. I met Larry Fink there. Mm-hmm. Um, and she'd have portfolios of work by Lee and Gary and such, and I would sit there and look at the photographs, just sort of mm. fascinated. But she then, after she left Time Life, yes, she went. She was the managing editor at Aperture for right. many years. Yeah, ten years, I think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then she left that, and she formed a company with Marvin Heiferman called Lookout. And mm. what they did was. They publish books of their own, which are quite wonderful that sort of fallen by the wayside. But they also packaged books for people. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I know Diane Keaton did a book with them. She did more than one book with them, actually. She had an idea for a book. She had um, found this collection of photographs. Actually, it was film footage of training films for salesmen in the from the 1940s and they did a book with her called Mr. Salesman so they would figure out they'd help her edit mm. and they would do this with different photographers right. they would help edit sequence the book find a designer this that and then they'd find the money or the publisher to publish the book so they were book packagers basically yeah. mm. but as said they did their own books they did a book called I'm so happy mm. where they went to picture files and selected pictures that supposedly described happiness and I can tell you that one of the pictures included was, for example, the massacre at Jonestown, where everyone drank the Kool Aid, oh. right? Or Guyana, Guyana, yeah, Jonestown, Guyana, right? Jonestown, yeah, so yeah. that's somebody's idea of love, of ha- yeah, yes. happiness. But anyway, so the books were sort of arch, and hmm. some people could say cynical, but the truth is, if you look at them slowly and think while you're looking at, they're actually quite moving. Mm-hmm. And tragic in many ways. Well, I know another book that she was involved in, I just showed to my digital documentary class, which is uh, From the Picture Press. Right? Oh, yeah. Which she did right. with John Sharkovsky. Yeah. Well, actually, you know, it was Diane Arbus who started the research on that project right. and then um, killed herself. And she had she had physically begun to gather pictures. Mm. And because I remember coming across a little envelope, not a not little envelope, but a group of them. And... Um, one of them, I remember, was of a lynching down south that she had found. Um, and then John did want to do that exhibition. And I think he probably asked around and probably spoke with people like Lee and Gary. Mm. And Carol had worked with them on mm-hmm. the document. And, and he needed someone who was going to go through picture files sort of right. religiously, relentlessly, huh. you know with all sorts of energy, and she was the person to do that. And so he hired her to do the project, and yes. Yeah, it's a great example because I I use it when we're talking about the caption, you know, and and it's great to just see those without, you know, there's small captions, but it's really, they're separated and taken out of context. Oh, yeah. Well, in fact, I remember John got flack about that, and and it lasted a long time because I did an exhibition that was many years later, 82 maybe, a survey of photographs of American politicians right. from the 19th century through the 20th. And I had to get a lot of permission from the UPI was the problem. Mm. And um, I remember a conversation with a fellow who was the picture editor who made this decision. At the and New York he, desk at UPI? Yeah. Was it Ed Hart by any chance? I don't think so. Oh, okay. Yeah. He had an Italian name, this fellow. Mm. In any case, he said, 
that he was reluctant because of what John Sharkowski had done to the picture press. He mm. didn't get it. He mm. didn't understand that it wasn't a critique of the photographers. Right. That it was about the nature of picture making, iconography, and meaning in photographs. And certainly with news photographs, you have no idea what's going on, you know, <laughs> yeah. unless you've got the caption. Anyway, exactly. yeah, yeah. Anyway, so that's my, so my sister worked with John. And then after my job taking orders for radios and televisions, <laughs> I got pretty bored pretty fast. And at the same time, I did things like I took a history photography class with Joseph Breitenbach, the oh. photographer at the New School. Hmm. And I went to the Visual Studies Workshop in Rochester and took a summer workshop on photo conservation. Mm -hmm. And so I was kind of... So you were already I just, interested. You were thinking I was very, about I was yeah. hooked. Yeah. I was hooked. From from those, like, going and yeah. seeing your sister, what she was looking yeah. at. You knew there was something yeah. to it. Well, yeah. Just before we get too far yeah. ahead, what was there anything before that? I mean, you and your sister looking at the New Yorkers, yeah, wanting well, to get back to New York. Did yeah. you have an idea that it would be well, the people, art world? Well, people or? have asked both my sister and my sister's now deceased, but they asked us that question oftentimes, like at dinner parties when we were together and stuff. And my sister had one answer and I had another answer. And of course that makes complete sense. My sister believed that it had to do um, with the fact that we often traveled by car in our family and we would do things like drive to Florida or drive to California, like back and forth, you know. Or, and my father would always say, look, look at that, you know, which was true. Um, so my sister believed that her interest in looking and looking carefully, which one does with photographs, that's really what you're doing, um, came from that. I, my idea about it was, I used to be fascinated because we, as I said, we lived in Jersey and there was a newspaper called the Newark Evening News, which was sort of like the Daily News, mm. if I remember, you know, kind of tabloidy kind of paper. I and mean, this is what I remember as a child. Mm. And I would be fascinated by the photographs, you know, if it were, you know, a Ouija kind of picture of somebody who'd been stabbed on the street or something like that. And to me, it was about um, information. It was about reality. It was about understanding what was going on around me in the world. And so photographs for me, even though we now know that they're not the truth, <laughs> um, you know, it's like Todd Papageorge often or did in the past always talk about photography in relation to literature. And you have a set, you know, you have a vocabulary and you use that set of words to write. And you have everything from Walt Whitman to Jack Kerouac to, you know, Ernest Hemingway to whomever. In any case, um, and similarly, photography, you know, you're making pictures in the world and um, it's informed by an authorial voice. You know, it's informed by the intelligence and the imagination and the discipline and all those things of the photographer, but I probably got off the point. <laughs> no, 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 um, but in any case, but your father. Uh, but I was looked. fascinated. Yeah, my father was. <laughs> and for me, it was a way. And I'm also I, I read constantly. I mean, these are all photo books that you see here, but these are all the bedrooms filled with. It's insane, and I have a house in Pennsylvania. It's just reading. Aside from being an escape, um, I thought I could figure out more about the world, and I felt I, that was true about photography. Hmm. So to me, in a way, it really it wasn't so much about appreciate. I didn't understand it as an art form. To me, it was about information. Mm -hmm. It was about this is another aspect, somebody's idea about the world, and that's interesting. Yeah. Anyway. When we had our conversation with uh, Charlie Traub, uh -huh. mm -hmm. he told us a, a story similar maybe to your sister's where he was, uh, they would go on these car trips uh -huh. and... Uh, 
of course, was I don't know where they in Illinois or where they were, but he, they would go. They, they would crest this hill, right? And the it was Illinois, was just right? Flat, and right? Like Artsin's about, and, right? And, and his, right, exactly. And his father would go, "Look, right. look at this landscape. Right. You know, it's amazing." And he's like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. And yeah. then later, years later, he was in school and he's walking down into the darkroom, and they had this panorama going across of the right. landscape, and it, the was photograph it, was of it an Artsin's about? It might have been. Probably. I think it was an Artsin's well, about. Well, art yeah. taught at the Illinois, absolutely. And he suddenly had this revelation. About not only the landscape but about photography yeah. and everything else. In yeah. fact, yeah. in fact, it was such a revelation. I believe he, the, to quote him, he said, uh, "That's what my father was fucking talking about." It right? right. <laughs> talking about it, right? It was, it was really a revelation for him. Right. right. Yeah. right. <laughs> right. Anyway, so I, yeah. I guess you know. Then there was a point. Well, I, I got my my sister had gotten me a job from the warehouse in the Time Life Picture Collection, which was it was extraordinary. They had sixty five million. Photographs, mm. so that all of the photographers who worked on con- there were all, very few photographers. I think John Mealy was one of them. There might have been one or two others who actually retained their own negatives. Mm. And, but otherwise, everyone worked on contract. There were very few staff photographers for Time Life, and but the agreement was that they had to hand over their film, mm. their contacts, all of it, mm-hmm. and there was a lab there mm. on the twenty eighth floor, and the people who worked for Time Life. They would shoot the film and they would send the film back to the Time Life building and the film would be developed there, contacted. The contact sheets would go to the picture editors at the magazines. And of course, it's not just Time Magazine, Life Magazine. It was Fortune, uh, well, eventually People, Money Magazine. Was Look in there? Sports Illustrated. No, no, Look was another company. Yeah. Sports Illustrated, et cetera, et cetera. So... um, Picture editors would decide from the contact sheets which frames should be printed into prints. Mm-hmm. So somebody went, let's say, to the Nixon White House, and there was a press conference, and they photographed Nixon. Right. You know, they do headshots. It's Gary's thing. Headshot, half length, a guy walking on a beach. Right. Um, but the editors would decide. And all of that, not the negatives, because those were kept in a separate place, but all of those prints and the contact sheets would be filed in file cabinets in manila folders, and they'd be given a number when the film came in to be developed. The guys in the lab would assign it a number. And there was a system within the picture collection wherein not only each print that was printed, and they also gathered images from all the wire services. Mm. So we're talking, Mm. it's like everything, you know, anytime an event happened, they had access to every kind. Right. So everything, the contact sheets, I'm not joking, and the prints would be cataloged, cross-referenced for any way that the picture could be used. And the cross-referencing system was based on, I won't remember the the transcript. The woman who started the collection, or rather shaped it, was a woman named Doris O'Neill. And she developed this book called The Transcript, which was probably, I'm not exaggerating, about six, seven inches thick. Alphabetical by subject categories that she had devised. Mm. The card catalog was probably about 10, 20, 25 feet long and <laughs> both sides. Wow. This is pre-computer. Yeah. So there were at least six people. When the photographs, after the magazines were published on Friday night over the weekend, the picture editors would send those contact sheets and the prints down to the picture collection. There were at least six people who did nothing but catalog, mm. and they would type. So they the had cards. like memorized that six-inch well, book. Well, the six-inch book 
there were several copies of it. So if you were thinking, if it were a picture of us right now, you could say um, middle-aged people. <laughs> or with <laughs> sure. me, you could say old people no. dash Americans. So it would be your general category, let's say, would be middle-aged mm. people or something. Right, right. Um, and then it would be by country. And then it would be perhaps by the city, and then it would be by the year. So it would be middle-aged American um, New York City, as opposed to rural, right. uh, 2016. So if It'd I, so interior I could interior versus exterior. And yeah, all that exactly. Stuff, right? Well, you would do the exteriors like um, dining, outdoor, mm-hmm. backyard. What it was insane. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it worked. Wow. Because my job, I actually, you had to be trained as a as a cataloger, but pretty quickly I was um, assigned to answer research research questions from the staff and the magazines. So I would get a call from Alice George, someone else we know, who was a picture editor eventually at Fortune and other magazines and has been involved with photography for a very long time. And she says, Susan, I need photographs of Richard Nixon looking angry, headshots for the last six months. Mm. So all of that cataloging information on the cards would tell me that mm. and then would tell me where the picture was filed. So you might have 15 places. Right. You, this is all on the 28th and floor. You might just be finding the contact sheets or that would only be You might stuff. be finding the contact okay. sheets, but most likely there'd be a, a print. print. Mm. And so then you would pull the ones you thought were particularly good. Mm. I remember I once got a request for a vegetarian meal. Mm. And I'd say, well, why? <laughs> and they, they said, well, actually, it's an article about the fact. It's about vegetarianism. But more specifically, they talk about how Hitler was a vegetarian. Ah, uh, yes. So I went to meals, vegetarian, blah, blah. It breaks down, breaks down. And I find an actual photograph from the time of Hitler's vegetarian dinner. Oh, my God. With the caption. It's some <laughs> German news agency or right. something. And oh. there it was. And I happily called Alice George up and said, not only did I find a picture of a vegetarian meal, but I found Hitler. I could tell you what he was eating. Meal. Exactly. Anyway, so it was crazy, crazy. But there were a lot of wonderful photographers who worked for them. So you got to see. It's like the whole world was there. Right. I mean, and, and there were also, don't forget, there were 35 millimeter color transparencies. And people like Elliot Ellisoffen, who was a life photographer, would actually do something like go to the South Pacific for six months and photograph the islands he felt like stopping at or something <laughs> thereabouts. But when that work came back, there might be a plant which they had just that was only grew there, which they had just discovered cured acne. I don't know, whatever. Right, right. And they'd say, we're doing an article on this plant. Can you find? And it would be horticulture, plants, and then breakdown by that. So then you would sit at a light table. And you would go through, because there was no way for them to be divided, you have to go through and look at every single transparency, look into the light mm. table. It was insane. But, but it was great. Yeah, it sounds like, though, there already was, I mean, you were having to find things, but you were already getking to have like a bit of a taste maker. You were able to say, like, oh, Absolutely. this is the good version. They, yes. they only ask you for this, but you're already like, no, but I mean, there are that. lousy headshots of Richard Nixon looking angry, and right. there are ones that are really good. I yeah. mean, it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and obviously taking, you know, photo history classes and understanding something about the tradition of the medium, who the really great workers were, you know, that also informs your sense of what's a good picture, obviously, et cetera, et cetera. So all of this is adding 
towards. And then it, my sister had worked with John Tarkowski on the Picture Press show, and there was a moment when I think it was Diana Edkins, who was the research supervisor, was leaving, and the job was open. And my sister said, "You're so bored. Why don't you apply for this?" And I'm sure it's still in the file if they still if they kept the file at home. <laughs> I typed a letter to John Tcharkowski, and I, the other thing I'd done was I'd worked with John Mealy, who was an interesting character because when Harold Edgerton invented the strobe up at MIT, he was friends with Mealy, and Mealy's the first person to really use the strobe in the studio, hmm. in like for commercial purposes. Yeah. Anyway, John needed someone to help him organize his archive and I did that. So when I applied, I wrote to John Tchaikovsky and I said, this is what I've been doing. I've been working the time of picture because I've also been working with John Mealy on the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays for a year, <laughs> helping him organize his archive. And I've taken this class in the history of the medium and I've taken a conservation class, blah, blah, blah. So if I sound at all appropriate, please. And he called me up. So I went and interviewed, and basically, um, he kind of like this. He said, so, tell me the story of your life, mm. which I sort of did. And, <laughs> um, and then he had a great early 20th century photograph that was a news photograph. Or rather, let's just say it was a photograph made for historical purpose. It wasn't really a news photograph because it was too big. It was probably, you know, I don't know, uh, 20, maybe it wasn't even as big, quite as big as 20 by 24, but it was pretty big. And it was a photograph, I think, of, um, might have been William Taft in a motorcade going through some small town. The photographer is clearly up on like the third, second, third floor of a building shooting down so that he gets the parade of cars. Yeah. And then there are people in the windows. And then in any case, he pulled out the picture and he said, what do you think of this? Mm. And so we discussed it for, you know, 15, 20 minutes or whatever. Mm. And I left and then he hired me. Uh, nice. He was impressed with that conversation. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I so, mean, it must. that's an unusual skill set for anyone to have back then anyways. It's not you like... Think? Yeah, it's not like today where everyone's like, oh, I'm interested in... Being a, maybe go into curatorial studies. Oh, or this, I had no idea what it meant to be a curator. <coughs> yeah. I really, I really didn't. So to, I didn't even know it was like a profession. To have spent all this time looking at photographs, and you went and took courses in photography. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I think that probably no, I, set I, you apart. I, I, yeah, I guess so. But yeah. but it really did come out of not an not any kind of aspiration for a career as much as just pleasure you know right. of looking at pictures and learning and learning and looking and looking yeah you know which it still interests me so your sister carol starts in 1976 at aperture and you start at the museum of modern art 1976 as well i think that's right yeah yeah what was it um a little more rare a little more unusual for women to be in the business was well not at a museum mm -hmm. um well in fact when my sister was at time life I think she may have been the first woman to be a picture editor in that, you know, Timelight does tons of book series, the Civil War, World mm -hmm. War II, mm -hmm. science, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I think she was the first woman who was named to be a picture editor. Mm. Um, but as far as my going to the museum, no. You know, uh, uh, many art historians, most art historians are women. And so the museum was filled with women curators. Mm. In terms of photography... Gosh, you maybe I mean, Nancy Newhall had yeah, been at right. MoMA and she was there really because Beaumont, right. who was the first director of the photo department at MoMA, had to go off to 
fight, although I don't think he fought, in World War II, and she was named acting director while he was away at the war. So she was there, but historically, you may be right, I'm not sure there were many women involved. I mean, pretty quickly in the 70s, though, there were people who started training people like Marie Morris Homburg, mm -hmm. you know, got her doctorate on Aceh through Columbia. But people, there were people like Eugenia Janis, actually, who taught Maria at Wellesley, who is an art historian, and also became very interested in photography in the 70s. But you may be right. I can't think of institutions where, whether, and there, aren't, there weren't that many institutions that were collecting photography, even when right. I got to the museum. I mean, the Art Institute of Chicago did for many years, but the program, the photo program, was never paramount in those places. Van Deren Koch had been at SF MoMA. You know, George Eastman House clearly was there mm -hmm. forever since the time of George Eastman. Right. Um, but they also collected film, and it was so encyclopedic. I mean, they, you know, it was more about representing the medium as a technical yeah. thing. Historical, technical. Exactly, right, rather right. than necessarily artistic. There weren't a lot of artistic choices that went on there. So I think you're right. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. it never occurred to me that that was true. But now now you're at MoMA and so you're seeing you're not getting access to the hundreds of thousands of photographs coming through. It's all no, of a sudden this No, but there were 5,000 Eugene Natchez mm -hmm. and there were, you know, 10 boxes of Edward Weston and mm -hmm. you know, all of these photographers whose pictures I had only seen on the walls at MoMA. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that's one of those funny things. I mean, it's just how sophisticated we've become. I used to go to MoMA to look at that survey of the history of photography, which John Tchaikovsky had put up, I think, in 64, something like that. Mm. It wasn't changed. It was still there. <laughs> until <laughs> 79 or 78. Wow. And mm. Ansel Adams endowed a position in the department in the name of Nancy and Beaumont Newhall, which was the Newhall Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And the first woman, whose name was Betsy Jablow, was hired as the Newhall Fellow. John hired her as a three-year position wherein a scholar could work within the context of a museum with photography, could work with photography. So it was about training people to work, to answer your question, mm -hmm. to work with photography at an art museum. And mm -hmm. Betsy was the first person. And her assignment was to change that survey of the history. Because mm -hmm. wow. it had been up for 20-some right. years. With the, there were, you know, I remember there were plate, was, it was the old Philip Johnson building on 53rd Street where there were plate glass windows. I mean, they were tinted. But still. But hey, <laughs> still I remember the light, William Klein right? fashion Paris picture was there for, oh, a good 20 years. And, <laughs> you know, I've written about the Alvarez Bravo mm -hmm. that was there, which was that incredibly enigmatic photograph, um, La Buena, Fa uh, La Buena Fama Durmiendo, uh, The Beautiful Woman Asleep, something like that. Is that uh. the right... I, oh, I I, I'm, not, I'm translating yeah. it wrong, and I did the retrospective of the show. But in any case, <laughs> it's the woman wrapped in bandages lying right, on the right, rooftop, right, right. which to me, I mean, it was complete. I had no idea. I knew nothing about surrealism. Mm -hmm. I, you know. <laughs> anyway, 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 anyway. Um, yes. So I was there at moment. I was hired as the research supervisor, which basically meant I brought people boxes of photographs. Mm -hmm. I also did everything else, meaning... I answered all the phones. Mm -hmm. I we looked at portfolios once a week. Mm -hmm. Photographers were required to bring them by and drop them off, and they'd be given a receipt for the work, and I would receive the work and give it back. 
I did all the paperwork on all the loans of photographs that were going out of the department, wow. and I assisted on all of the exhibitions. So how many people are in the department? Oh, at there this was point? only John Cherkowski. Dennis Longwell was mm. an assistant curator. Mm. Um, he had taken, I think, Peter Bunnell's place. Peter Bunnell, who had gone on to Princeton, mm. and there was so there was John, Dennis Longwell, Pat Walker, who was the secretary in the department, mm -hmm. myself. And then John arranged to get, well, that's not true. Well, he had, but Peter Galassi had been there, I think, a couple of years before as an intern. Oh, wow. And then um, Maria Morris, who had been at Columbia with Peter Galassi, was there as an intern when I arrived. And then she, she, um, she was working on her doctoral thesis, and she decided to do it on Aceh at Columbia, and John kept her on staff, mm -hmm. and she worked on the Aceh books, you know, eventually. I mean, she's the one who figured out his dating system for the negatives. Oh, okay. Anyway, so the staff was very, very small. Right. No preparator, no cataloger. I did all the cataloging. Oh, I, did, yeah. I did everything. Well, you've, I've gone there with you, and uh, we went into the back room, you know, and looked in the cold storage right. and pulled things out, but I'm imagining that in the 70s, it, what, were you guys probably like handling prints and moving things around with like probably not even wearing gloves or oh, anything? Oh, no. And yeah. not only that, we all smoked. Right. <laughs> I mean, John would smoke his pipe. Peter and I would smoke cigarettes. We'd have the ashtrays on, not on the table. We weren't that stupid. But down on a little stool next to where we were sitting. And when we would look at portfolios, don't tell the photographers who left the work for 20 years, you know, we'd be smoking. You know, it was crazy, right. <laughs> crazy. Were you were you also a bit of a firewall with a, for those entries? Like, did you weed out things before anyone no. else saw them? Or no, that, that okay. was beautiful that mm -hmm. we didn't, that yeah. there wasn't a firewall. Because that was always true in the other curatorial departments for the obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. um, they would they they would always ask people to send slides, whether it was painting and sculpture or prints or whatever, and John always maintained this, and Peter and I tried for as long as we could. Peter, being the director, was you know the one who made the decision, and he did. He tried. But the notion that photographs were transportable, which of course is no longer true since people are making photographs the size of the garage wall. Yeah. <laughs> but in those days, you know, when we started, and in fact, when we started getting bigger photographs, I actually, in an in a exhibitions meeting within the department, I said, wait a minute. All of the photographs have been getting really, really big. <laughs> what about a f an exhibition of big photographs? And it was um, John Pultz, who was the new Hall Fellow at that time, who did that show called The Big Picture. Oh. And of course, it's about when photography has entered the art market. Right. But it's not, I don't mean to be so cynical to no, yeah. suggest that's the only reason the mm -hmm. photographs got big. They also had to vie with, as it entered the art market, it had to vie with the other mediums on the wall, whether it's at the gallery or in the museum. I mean, are you going to keep making 8 by 10 pictures mm -hmm. when you've got paintings the size of Anselm Kiefer, right. et cetera, et cetera? And those gallery so white gonna, walls got bigger and bigger. Yeah, right? and, 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 then, and then you have people, you know, great photographer, Jan Groover. And I remember thinking her pictures were so large at the time. <laughs> they were like 20 by 24 right. or 30 by 32 yeah. by 40 or whatever. Beautiful, beautiful color prints. And I remember when she had a show of the still lifes that she made in the kitchen sink and I, at, at Sonnenbend, which was 1977. And they were big at the time. 
anyway, what's the point? No, so no right. firewall. Right. People would bring their work. We would have somewhere between 15 and 30, maybe 25 a week. One person would be responsible for taking the work out of the box and all of, you know, John, Dennis, um, whoever the intern was, myself, we'd sit around the table. The last person would be assigned to put the work back in the box oh. properly without, you know, and obviously things were handled with care, but they would be passed down the table, around the table. And um, we would discuss it, you know. I mean, there were many things you could dismiss very quickly as there are in anything, mm -hmm. I suppose. But then there'd be, you know, John was such a great teacher. He'd say, well, I'd say, what's wrong? I mean, they're just not quite right. I mean, there's something interesting about it, but what's the problem? And we had a board, not a board where you'd stick things, but you'd, where you could lean things and you could look at them. And John would say, well, let's, well, let's look at these. And he'd pull out three pictures and put them up the board. And we'd look at them and, and, you know, it might be something, it sounds pretty heavy handed now, but it'd be like, there's too much foreground in every single picture. You know, there really is. Or, or John would say, you know, same thing, I suppose. They're not close enough. They're just not close enough. Whatever. You would, you would figure it out. Or you would figure out what was good about it. You'd figure out what was bad about it. You'd sort of break it down by discussing its formal properties, whether it be the printing. You know, and someone might say, well, the prints are terrible. And someone else would say, yeah, but I think the prints are part of the meaning of the picture. The, the bad quality of the prints. It's mm. sort of like William Klein. You know, mm -hmm. you've got huge grain and scratches and this or that and the other thing. Not that Klein had scratches, but he certainly, the grain was right. very visible. So, you know, it was a, a, you know, it was just discussing the properties of the pictures to figure out, you know, what was interesting. And then, you know, someone would say, well, you know, it's kind of like Callahan. I remember Peter writing about Lee Friedlander and his free, giant Friedlander monograph. And he's talking about uh, Lee's pictures in Yosemite or wherever. And he says, it's like Ansel Adams on crack. <laughs> and, you know, so you could, you know, you'd be sitting looking at work and you'd say, well, it's like Harry Callahan gone bad or something, you know, <laughs> pictures of his wife or whatever. You know, so you would relate it to the history of the medium and you could relate. There is a tradition. Mm. There are bodies of work that have existed and, and stood the test of time and and that was always what was so fascinating is how it, the work would veer away from that or contribute to it or just a nuanced difference, you know. Mm -hmm. anyway. So that was a great educational thing to, you know, to look at work with John and other people. So what, what was your process like kind of rising through the ranks at the Museum of Modern Art? How, well, how it, you know, I, well, I can tell you, John, there was a moment when John said to me, why don't you do a little exhibition of recent acquisitions? And I said, okay. So he said, you can take in the old galleries, this is back in that Philip Johnson building, there was a kind of alcove that was a kind of um, anteroom to the galleries, and the walls were probably, gosh, I'm really bad, you know, maybe 12 feet on either side, and then there were these spur walls that were perhaps, you know, two or three feet. So you could fit oh, who knows, tops 20 pictures. Mm. So he said, well, go down and look at the space. And then, you know, there are lists compiled when works are acquired so that the registrar who's responsible for the traffic of the work always uh, assign, would assign unique numbers to the objects. So there were lists of recent acquisitions. So he said, look at the recent acquisitions for the last couple of years and select a few dozen, couple dozen pictures and show me what, you, what you've chosen. 
So I did that. I just went, the, I literally went through the book and chose my favorite pictures. <laughs> and I, that sounds terrible, but the truth is there were 19th century pictures and there were vernacular pictures and there were, I remember one of my, one of the great stories when I was there at that desk answering all the phones, I got a phone call from a man and he said, uh, this is Dr. Iago Goldston. And I was a friend of Walker Evans in the 1920s, early 30s. And I'm a dentist, actually, by trade, although I did photograph some. And Walker and I were very good friends. And, you know, there was a time when he couldn't pay his dental bill. So he paid me by giving me these photographs um, that he'd made in the late 1920s. Wow. And I wonder if you want them. And I said, um, where do you live? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm in Brooklyn, but, you know, I'll, I'll bring them tomorrow. I said, okay, but give me your name and address and telephone number, <laughs> right, you know, right. which, of course, I got. <laughs> he came by the next day, you know, top coat, suit, mm. well-dressed, and he has this little album of, you know, Walker made those sort of constructivist views in the late 1920s. Mm -hmm. Well, contact prints, tiny, you know, inch and a half by who knows, mm -hmm. an inch, whatever. And to, to pay his dental bill... He'd taken black construction paper and glued the photographs on each page. And then he'd tied it together with, like, he punched holes at the end. And he tied it together with a piece of wool, right? <laughs> and so there were, I think, a dozen of them. Wow. In any case, this is so, indeed, the f we didn't have a photo conserver at the time. But there was someone there. Or actually, that's not true. I think we enlisted someone on a freelance basis to take the photographs off the construction mm. paper since they, it was bad for them. And then they were properly mounted. But that's one of the things that I selected. Wow. I put up... For, and, we, and the museum owned none of those. None of those early <laughs> pictures by Evans. Uh -huh. um, in any case, that was one of the things that I selected for that little installation. I think there were a few more... Uh, a few 19th century things... I doubt whether there are actually installation views. Mm. But that was the first thing I did. And so, and John, he looked at what I'd selected and he said, terrific, it looks great. Mm. I wouldn't add anything, it looks terrific. Mm. So then he said, and then, you know, get them framed. And I, I had been doing the framing for the lawn, so I knew how to frame pieces. And then I went to the floor and when they were done and, and I arranged them. And John came down and he walked around and, which took all of, 30 seconds because it was such a small space and he looked and he said he was always so civilized <laughs> and uh, respectful and he said may I could I may I try moving this and he like switched two pictures maybe I think I'd chosen four of those Evans and he might have switched two of them around and he said mm. it looks great perfect <laughs> great mm. so that was the first show that I did and then why was I made an assistant curator? I don't know why I was made an assistant <laughs> curator. Maybe because, you know, because there's a moment then when John goes on sabbatical, which is like in around 80. I think I had to be, a, I, you couldn't have an acting director unless they were an associate curator. Nice. So I was made an associate curator. Right. Oh, okay. Oh, Something okay. So like you that. could be acting in 80 and 81. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Something like that. <laughs> and I did. I, you know, I ran the department, but the exhibition schedule was pretty well set before John left. I mean, it wasn't like I was like saying, hey, want a show? Uh, no, it was, but I, you know, uh, what, we, we had acquisitions meetings, we acquired a fair amount of work. 
while yeah, John was gone. Well, I don't know if it's a legendary or not, but there's a, the legend is that while that during that year you bought stuff that maybe John wouldn't have purchased. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's what I heard. Did you? Did really? you? Like, a, did you buy? A, did you get a Cindy Sherman then, maybe or no, something? No, no. I heard something. I heard. No, like, there is a legendary story about yeah, that yeah. because. Um, oh, maybe Larry Fink? No, 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 oh, no, okay. no, 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 oh. no, no. I didn't. No, I don't think I bought anything that John wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Oh. approved of no and it's just a legend it's just another one of those urban, urban legends legend. um no but the cindy sherman I, this is actually I should. <laughs> john had great difficulty understanding cindy sherman um and there was someone i'll, I'll leave names out who mm-hmm. offered us a gift and so john got the word from the person offering the gift and sent peter and i down to and she was at 420 west broadway and she might have been with Possible Mary Boone at the time. In any case, Peter and I liked the show, and they were the magazine spreads, meaning those sort of um, what are they called, like in Playboy? Du- yeah. The double truck, or yeah, the double centerfold? page centerfolds, oh, okay, centerfolds, right. and um, that's what the work was. And so Peter and I went down there, and we liked the work, and but we thought because anything that any curatorial department. Well, I don't know about the other departments. I shouldn't say that. But anything that went through photography would have to, before it was proposed to the committee, would have to be approved by the director. So Peter and I, I think we had three, because they were framed, uh, brought to MoMA. And Peter and I, I think we must have talked with John, <laughs> discussed the work for a good hour. And, the it, it, you know, it's the epitome, at that point in time, sort of the epitome of postmodern photography, mm. meaning... She's using a 35 millimeter when she's in the studio. And, and I can remember one of the points that John made was, why doesn't she use a better camera? Mm-hmm. You know, and why, and, and I mean, it sounds as though he's being ignorant and it, and maybe ignorant is the word rather than stupid. I mean, he just, to me, it's an interesting point though. And he does end up including Cindy Sherman in his photography until now. Yeah. I mean, I think he eventually recognized the contribution but, you know, it might not have been his cup of tea, given his history with photography and the kind of work that he championed. In any case, we, the conversation ended with John saying, well, if you two want to do it, fine, you choose it. Mm. So we did. And um, it's the picture of her in the velour orange shirt lying on the floor yeah. with a sort of linoleum tile or something mm-hmm. beneath her. And she's clutching like an ad, like some, you know. Yeah, it's very famous. And that was it. <laughs> um, so I can't remember what in general we were talking about. Oh, no, just that. Just, you know. Um, the legends. Oh, right, <laughs> right, right, right. Well, the urban myth, but yeah. no. The, uh, just sort of uh, right. your time at, at right, Museum right, Modern right, Art. Right, and, right. And, and, right. and, you know, g- going back to some of those those early influences you talked about news photography and uh-huh. the Newark newspaper and then all the images coming in through uh-huh. time life and all that and uh-huh. your the way you you saw photography as information uh-huh. things like that do you see that as having an influence on the kinds of projects you've done the the books you've worked on think, the shows you've worked on because I, I I look at some of them like American politicians yeah. and fashioning fiction and uh-huh. pictures of the times and and they they seem to be uh, um, projects that you worked on that where you see photography as being emblematic of a moment, a period of of, mm. of our visual memory of what something looked like mm-hmm. at that time. I think that's pretty accurate. I mean, the truth is, if you look at the shows I've done, it really does vary. 
But sure. I don't know that anyone would have done some a show like, except perhaps John, and he approved that show. He thought it was a great idea. And it's actually uh, my friend Michael Almereda, the film director. He, I was, we were having dinner, and I said, um, you know, I should come up with some exhibition ideas, and I, you know, I'm just not. He said, what about a survey of photographs of American politicians? I said, that's great. You know, and then I went to John the next day or whatever, and he said, that's great. Um, I'm not sure there's anyone who would do such a show except maybe John, especially at this point in time. I think we think we're so, I mean, I love Philip Lorca de Corsi's line about photography, that it's a language everyone thinks they understand. Is, mm, that, yeah. the, is that the quote? And in a way that's true, I think people think they're so sophisticated that the notion of analyzing or deconstructing news photographs or photographs that are historical photographs, um, it's, it's just not, it's not of interest, you know, that we're too sophisticated. We know, you know, that they're not, we know they're not necessarily the truth, you know, we're all mm -hmm. a bit cynical, I, I mean, I'm not. I mean, I still, you know, I get the newspaper delivered to my door and I pick it up every morning and it's like, wowie zowie. Mm -hmm. And you still see great pictures, you know, in terms of vernacular photography and news photography and stuff. So I, I would say that, um, and it may also have come out of that picture press exhibition that my sister did with mm -hmm. John Cherkowski, because that was sort of my introduction to the museum, aside from visiting that survey, in terms of exhibition. Um, and it was a little while till I got maybe a little while till I got to art photography. Although, again, I was looking at Lee and Gary's. Uh, clearly what it indicates is my prejudice. My, mm. my, my, my passion is photographs made in the world, right? about the world, you know, as being a place of infinite meaning and possibility. And I, to this day, believe that. Which is not to say that I don't appreciate Cindy Sherman. I do. I do. And there are other postmodern photographers whose work I like wherein they're commenting on the medium and the pictures are set up. You know, most of Jan Groover was work made in the studio. I mean, you could say, well, it's still life, so it's not, you know. I mean, she certainly is not, was not a postmodernist. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I think my tastes are pretty Catholic in mm. terms of what I enjoy. But the bottom line, really, my heart is really with work it, that is, you know, pictures made in the world and right. that transform the world into something else. That's all. I, I still think there's magic in that. And I still see photographs that are unlike other photographs. Well, that's the end of our conversation with Susan Kismarek. We'll pick up where we left off with her in part two, so stay tuned for that. While you're waiting for part two, how about heading over to iTunes and leaving us a nice comment? You can also subscribe to the podcast there, or you could follow us on SoundCloud. All right, everyone. We'll talk soon. <laughs>